and welcome to the final episode of season one of the It's Nice That podcast. This is the show where we talk to leading designers, illustrators, creative directors and photographers about the delights and dramas of being a creative. We want to scrub away the Instagram gloss and hear the honest truth from people who have built careers out of their creativity. How do they come up with their best ideas? What's the secret to staying inspired? And what happens when creative projects go awry? My name is Kieran Yates and I'm a journalist, contributor and friend of It's Nice That. And I'm standing in for our usual host, Matt, who's currently on paternity leave. This week, Liz Gorney speaks to filmmaker, artist and writer Miranda July. We'll hear how she is relearning how to move her body, the process of writing her new book and always thinking about the most beautiful ways to present her work. We'll also, in our nice note, be hearing from artist and designer Le Bassis as he pays homage to the magic of his neighbourhood of Sao Paulo. First though, I'm delighted to say that I'm joined for this episode of the podcast by my colleague Liz Gorney. Hi. Hello. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Are you feeling very inspired after your chat with Miranda? Absolutely. I mean, it was definitely inspiring to hear Miranda talk about each one of her new works and also to hear her speak so honestly about the processes that go into each one of them. Super refreshing for an interview with any creative to have that kind of honesty. I always think it's really amazing when you get an opportunity to speak to someone in real time as they're creating because she's in the process of writing her book, isn't she? Yeah, I mean, it was really amazing to hear the story that went into Services, the new book, especially as an artist that creates so much responding to what is going on in the world around her and that works so serendipitously a lot of the time. The fact that she was creating it during the pandemic and how that affected the practice was really, really interesting. I'm always interested to hear how the pandemic affects people in their work. Was that your main takeaway that you were meditating on (laughs) for days after chatting to Miranda? I think the main takeaway was the fact that she was speaking about how she feels a lot of nerves in interviews, which is something that obviously we all have to deal with, especially as interviews ourselves. And so when she was speaking about how she has, I think she calls it a willingness to be a fool in interviews and sort of this honest admission of fear. I thought that was a beautiful thing to hear about, especially for other young artists listening, that no artist can make sort of really great personal work without feelings of terror and vulnerability that kind of come alongside it. Yeah, I'm an advocate for creative fears, (laughs) definitely. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. Thank you for the gift of speaking to Miranda. So without further ado, let's hear that chat. Hi, Miranda. So thanks so much for joining us today. Welcome to the It's Nice That podcast. How are you? I'm good, yeah. For our conversation today, I'd love to look just at your creative output, how it spans art, film, writing, and most importantly, how it manages to sit in between all those spaces. I'd also like to talk about how conversations play a role in your art and how in various ways you manage to capture something elusive about human interaction, intimacy and connection. So before that, I'd like to start by saying Preparing for this interview was unique, if not somewhat intimidating, because I knew I'd be interviewing someone who is a master of conducting interviews themselves. A lot of your art is focused around interviews alongside services, which we'll get into later. You've interviewed Rihanna and you've even turned an unexpected interview you had with your Uber driver on the way to meet Rihanna into another work. 
And in each interview, you manage to foster vulnerability between you and your subject. Can you tell us why vulnerable conversations are so important to your work and how you manage to tease out that intimacy and openness with the person you're speaking to? Yeah, why is that? I mean, it's not just important in my work. I'd say in my life, if there's not sort of a fairly high mutual risk level, then it's not that I get bored, (laughs) but I sort of feel somewhat useless or something, or like I almost don't know what to do with myself. And whereas if both people are sort of stepping over an invisible line of kind of what was expected of the interaction, then I feel like so present, like so completely there that it's like I'm always startled no matter what when it ends, you know, and and all these interactions do end or else we wouldn't be here. I'd still be in all of them. (laughs) It's just always an indication to me of how completely consumed I was by them and our kind of shared moment by the fact that I'm I'm never not offended <laughs> when it ends even if it if it's me you know if it's me then I'm just like want to die on my own knife and if it's them I'm completely you know I'm mad at them <laughs> even if it's been like 8 hours you know <laughs> I don't think I'm all that skilled I sort of think my thing is less skill and more just like willingness to be a fool. I'd also like to explore a few moments in your career and go all the way back and talk about me and you and everyone we know, which was your debut and feature in terms of directing, writing and acting in a lead role. Can you tell us how you came to write that film and what the process was like of moving from performance into creating that film specifically? Right. Well, It wasn't as out of nowhere as it seems. Like I had made, I'd always wanted to be a director, right? Like up until that first movie, I called my performances live movies because I was sort of trying to like do movies without any of the kind of infrastructure equipment that one might need because I didn't have any of that stuff. I was also making short movies that were getting longer. And after the last one I made, a movie called Nest of Tens, I was like, well, that was a half hour. So if I just did two more chunks like that, that would be a feature. And so it seemed within grasp. And I I just began writing the script. I feel like every filmmaker has their area that they're most comfortable in. And writing for sure is, is like my ballast. And so that's very within everyone's grasp financially, um, no matter where you're at in life. So, and that script really kind of carried me through the process because people responded to it. It wouldn't have worked to just go to people and be like, I want to make a movie. It was that I had me and my script. You touched upon it sort of briefly there, the way that you move between mediums, but also are kind of always working in a lot of different mediums kind of at one time. Does the idea for the medium you want to work in next come first or does it take shape sort of around the project? And what possibilities does writing say offer in comparison to film? Are there some mediums that are more joyful for you or expressive to work in that you prefer than others? These days, at least, it's often a reaction to the one that I'm in. And now I've been doing this long enough that I can kind of see like, oh, every time I'm writing a book, I always think performance seems like the greatest thing on earth, probably for the dumb reason of that, like, I'm just really lonely. And making a movie is like not, you know, you're not actually there with the audience. So I just 
I just want to be like a body among other bodies. And for example, right now I'm finishing a novel and I'm starting to, you know, for the last probably year of this novel, I've started to put notes into a folder for performance. And sometimes I also get up and just do stuff. That's always a nice thing because then once the project is done and the book is handed in, and I mean, for me, it can be a real crisis between projects. I've even done a project about (laughs) that kind of crisis. So I do like to overlap. And art projects, like for me, that's not really a commercial medium. Filmmaking and writing is. It's also very intimate and creative. But the thing for me about art, whether it's performance or an app or a sculpture is I I just haven't, I've done it differently maybe than other artists. Like I don't have a gallery. So it has a kind of ability to fit into odd spaces in my life and be a little more kind of relational, like built on relationships that happen in the moment. I make something, you know, or like I really love the immediacy of that. It's not always like that. I mean, obviously a performance works a little differently, but yeah, they each have their weight, their completely different kind of, not just currency, but kind of vibe or energy, you know, it's really a delight. On the sort of same vein of talking about disciplines and crossing them, in your follow-up film to um, Me and You and Everyone We Know, The Future, which is about a couple who decide to adopt a stray cat, there is a scene which I watched when I was a bit younger and it's always really stayed with me when your character Sophie dances in a t-shirt. And it's a wonderful example of what we've been discussing, sort of how you blend disciplines, but particularly have how you use physicality and dance in your films, something that features again in Kajillionaire and uh, Madeline's Madeline. Can you tell us more about how and why you use physicality in your films and what possibilities dance scenes in particular offer you when you're creating a film? Yeah, it's funny that's kind of crept up on me to the point where now... I am myself just in the most basic way, like, oh, I could dance in a performance. Like that's kind of the new place that I've gotten to is like, oh, I have this body and I could use it quite literally. But it's so odd how it, even though it's happening in public, like through these movies, as you mentioned, it's still an unconscious process. Like I'm like stunned to see that there I am dancing in a movie years ago. And I'm literally sort of being born kind of in this shirt. But I think that was the most unconscious dance. As I age, you know, it's kind of like I'm not that I really believe this, but like I'm sort of aging out of the time when people most want to look at a woman's body, you know. And, you know, I was a stripper and worked in peep shows. And it's not like I didn't participate in that, like buying and selling of women's bodies thing. But I do think I couldn't really dwell very deeply in that space because it's almost like it was occupied by someone else or so many other people. You know, it's like a crowded space. And now I find myself more alone in it. And it's almost like anything I do in this 48-year-old body is kind of (laughs) new because we sort of stop looking at those bodies at a certain point or, or, or putting the body out there or whatever, you know, you know what I'm talking about. So that's kind of intriguing as well. It's like kind of feels wide open. Just as intimacy and sort of human connection is captured in the rest of your work, you have a new book coming out this month, Services, which is based on a phone call you received by chance and the continuing conversations you had with the caller over the next six months. Can you walk us through the amazing premise that sparked the work and how it all came together? Right. So 
This call that I got, it's very important when I got it. So it was March 13th, 2020. So that's not just the start of the pandemic. It was the exact day in my world that it began. And it was the exact hour, in fact, when I and a lot of people I knew got messages from the school saying we're shutting down indefinitely, which if you're a parent, okay, you no longer can pretend that this doesn't affect you or is happening elsewhere. Like your whole life just got shot to hell, basically. I got a phone call. And I think in that sort of dumb way where you're like, everything's sort of related, you know, I just like answered it as if it was going to be like God explaining why this was happening. And it wasn't, it was, you know, maybe it was a telephone solicitor. But instead of doing the normal thing, like I'm not a saint, like just hang up, frankly, on solicitors or just usually don't answer. I answered every one of this person's questions. And I was clearly on some list for like self-published authors, which I'm not. But I was kind of funny about it. This person would say like, would you like more readers? And I'd be like, well you know, my books are like New York Times bestsellers, but sure, who wouldn't? Like I was being kind of, not a dick, but like a little, like I wanted to impress this random person. <laughs> and at the end of the question, when they finally were like, it doesn't seem like you need our services. I said, can I ask you some questions? And they laughed. And then I just said like, where are you? They were in the Philippines. You know, what's your name? What are you into? I couldn't tell if it was a man or a woman. And she said, I'm a trans woman. And you know, I have a trans child. And there was, I think, a moment of kind of further intimacy just in realizing that. And also just the fact that she was staying on the line. It's that exact thing I was talking about with you. We knew we had just crossed over into something that neither of us really should be doing. I just said, DM me um, if you're on Instagram. And we exchanged messages. You know, I said, do you want to collaborate? And I just wanted to be upfront because I hate to any feeling of like using someone. And the power imbalance here was like striking. We were both aware of it. But I proposed I give essentially assignments to her and she fulfill them. And we have a sort of ongoing conversation about just kind of our lives. And she was like, let's make a contract, which was reassuring to me. I don't think we ever signed the contract, but we, we hammered it out, which I think is largely the point. And then it was just this kind of surreal thing where no matter what assignment I sent her way, she came back with something so raw and interesting and often quite like laboriously done. You know, like I remember I asked her to act out a dream like in a photograph and she was dead in the image and she had like the foaming at the mouth that happens, I guess, sometimes when you die. She had done that with shampoo, you know, like just the the rigor of that, like, really impressed me. And it was a beautiful, upsetting image, too. And then I began often kind of intervening with the images and adding things, always things from her, you know, like things I would find on her Facebook that to me seemed, they were like little clues about her and like her interest in dominance and submission. Like in the end, I kind of gave her almost like a gift, although quite nerve wracking for me, all the images back with what I had done to them, or in some cases I had done nothing but kind of frame them. 
And that was sort of the moment of truth of like, did this work as a collaboration? Like, does she like this? And I think for both of us, it, it kind of shifted then and becoming something quite deep, kind of emotionally deep. And we actually continued and continue to this day collaborating like that. The project for Mac is, it's not actually a book in the traditional sense. It's a 23 foot long leporello, which is like an accordion. So it's kind of like a sculptural object. There's only 25 of them. They're like exquisitely handmade. They're just kind of like the most beautiful way you could present this work, which I really love. Like what we treasure, you know, gets so potentized. And I love that this work, because all these are taken on like her fairly shitty phone camera. And so it's just those images and these text messages and it's very satisfying. Even though services as an artwork is like this final object, it is also a record of another artwork, which is like the initial interaction. And so kind of carries a part of you in the work, which is the other side of the conversation, which is true for maybe all of your projects, whether you're starring in them or putting your input in, in that way. How do you sort of make sure you're presenting like an honest or like authentic part of yourself in the work? And is it hard to work in that way? Do you still feel very nervous revealing a new part of yourself or a truth about yourself in your artwork? Yeah, I mean, I always varying degrees of terror, I guess, otherwise sort of why do it? It's like the feeling of breaking new ground. And it's exciting too. like you're risking, but you're doing it with grand hopes of I mean, like I've had the opportunity to see myself presented by other people, whether acting or even just in something like this, you know, like not everyone has that like to be beheld, you know, to be held in someone else's eyes. It's a disorienting feeling. It's never going to be totally accurate but it can feel really wonderful and sort of weightless for a moment. Like you don't have to hold the weight of your own body. Amazing. That's all we have time for today. Thanks so much for joining me. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day, Miranda. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for talking. That was Miranda July there. If you want to hear a longer version of that interview, well, you can by joining Extra Nice. It's Nice That's membership program. You'll get your hands on a host of benefits and goodies, including a little bit more time and a few extra insights from Miranda July. So please do check it out. That's nearly all we've got time for. But before we head off, we've got one final treat in store. Every episode of the podcast, we hear from a creative somewhere in the world as they tell us about the place in their city that keeps them inspired. This week, we hear from artist and designer Le Bassis as he pays homage to the magic and beauty of his neighbourhood of Sao Paulo. Hey guys, I'm Le Bassis. I'm a Brazilian designer and lettering artist. I'm from Rio de Janeiro, but I just moved to Sao Paulo a couple of weeks ago. If I'm being completely honest here, I hardly ever leave the house. I love my new place, so I try to be here as much as I can. But when I need to take some time off, seeking for inspiration before starting something new, I like to explore the city. Since I'm new in town, it's always a nice surprise to walk around my neighborhood. Sao Paulo is a very nice city, full of culture and different people, which is one of the reasons I choose to move here. My house is located in Consolação, very close to Paulista Avenue, so it's really nice. Full of museums, cafes, thrift stores, and lots of people with different styles. I don't have a favorite place yet, but I choose to record this audio nearby one of my favorite bakeries. It's called Zest Zing, aka the best croissant in town. I love it because it's so close to home when I need to place to relax and grab a bite before a meeting, this is a place to go for me. 
And that's all we've got time for. My huge thanks to Miranda July, Le Bassis, and to my colleague Liz Gorney for joining me here on the podcast. Thank you, everybody. I'm sure you've listened to podcasts before, so this won't come as a surprise. But if you enjoyed listening to this, it'd make us very happy if you could write a review on your favourite podcast app. And even better, if you could subscribe to the show. The It's Nice That podcast is produced by Palm Tree Island. Our theme music was written and performed by Sounds Like These. As I mentioned earlier, this is the final episode of season one of the podcast. So thank you so much to all of our fantastic guests and of course to you, our listeners. We look forward to welcoming you all back for season two. So watch this space. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.